Hello and welcome to the latest ATP podcast. I'm Seb Lozier and this week we hear from the man of the moment, Novak Djokovic. We also hear from the man he's now trying to emulate by becoming Olympic champion, that is Andy Murray. And we have an embarrassment of tennis legends, including Stan Smith and Michael Stieck. But first, with Novak Djokovic becoming the first player to secure his place at the year-end Tour Finals, let's get the latest on the race to Turin. ATP Tour Uncovered have been crunching the numbers. I find motivation everywhere. When you practice with Andy Murray. I love this sport, I love competing. Novak Djokovic finding the gladiator spirit in Rome. You can always find motivation because every time you step on the court you want to win a match and, and you'll try to do everything in your power to, to do that. I'm very satisfied with my progression as a player, as an individual. I've been working hard to get there. Stefanos Tsitsipas claims his first Masters 1000 title. I feel very special to be competing against all those high-ranked players and just shows how much I have improved and uh, feel comfortable competing against the top guys and then you just feel you can beat any player on the court. It's really good for Italian tennis in general. We have Turin is growing a lot thanks to everyone. So I'm really thankful also for that and hopefully we cross fingers and hopefully uh, I'm gonna get there too. It is the biggest title of Matteo Berrettini's career and yet another Italian success story on the ATP Tour. I'm just trying to do my best, trying to focus on the things that I need to improve. Andre Rublev is the champion in Rotterdam. Outstanding tennis today. I think the main thing is because of my team. They really motivated me always. So in the end, we're like all together in one mood, moving in one direction. Andre Rublev, he's got it done against the 11-time Monte Carlo champion Rafael Nadal. So they give me a lot of energy and I think because of them I'm here today. I love the feeling of lifting that trophy. What a week, what a final, but it is Alexander Zverev who is the champion here. You know, that's when I get the most satisfaction after winning a big match or winning a big title. It's title number two in Madrid for Alexander Zverev. That's something that you play for and that's something that, you know, right now you get the biggest emotion out of it. And the benefits become colleagues, they can become champions. Team Russia win the ATP Cup. You need to be consistent to stay at the high rankings. The champions of the ATP Cup for 2021, Team Russia. And you need to win big tournaments, big titles, which is uh, not always easy because you're going to play the best players in the world. There it is! Game, set, championship one from Daniel Medvedev. Hopefully I can uh, continue this uh, throughout uh, all my career, which is a big challenge, of course. ready to adapt uh, your tennis uh, about uh, the things that can happen. Rafael 
Rafael Nadal is a champion in Barcelona for a 12th time. The man is quite simply a genius. And you need to, to stay focused because uh, every single day you're going to have a tough, a tough opponent in front. It is a 10th title for Rafa in Rome. 36 Masters trophies. I'll try to do the same thing, just like get better every single day and try to improve my game. That should be and that would be my main focus now to, to just be a, be a better player. Just outside the current top eight is a whole wealth of talent waiting to pounce. What a way to take it. Aslan Karatsev conquers Dubai in brilliant fashion. This remarkable Russian who has emerged in breathtaking fashion. Felix Roger Aliassime, simply too good today. What a response from Shapovalov. Yannick Sinner just getting better and better. You're not a human, man. You're 15 years old and you play like this. It's a first top five win in the career of Kaspar Ruud. The season's eight best doubles teams will also be in Turin, with the FedEx ATP doubles number ones, Nikola Mektic and Matej Pavic, having already sealed the first spot in Italy. A thrilling battle lies ahead for who will join them. The Nito ATP finals are set to finish the season in style. Don't miss a second of the FedEx ATP race to Turin. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com. So what fuels Novak Djokovic in his continuous quest for records? Vasek Pospisil was hungry to find out and he found Djokovic in the kitchen with WTA star Garbina Muguruza. All right, Novak, we're actually joined by Garbina, who I believe is in the kitchen right now. Garbine. Garbine. How are you Hola. doing? ¿Qué pasa? I'm in the kitchen. I'm literally cooking. <laughs> You're cooking. What are you cooking? I am. I am cooking a Spanish omelette. Wow. Oh, wow. Nice. I'm cooking the potatoes and the onions. Wow. Oh my God. Get together. Um, that looks so in, you made that? Looks incredible. Yeah. And then you have to put it in oh the pan God. now that it's, it's warm and then you put it and then you have to flip it, which is the tricky part. Is that your favorite meal, Garbina? No, it's not my favorite. I love it because it's like very Spanish. I feel like a lot of people think that maybe paella is super Spanish, but I think like the tortilla de patatas is like the basic, you know, every home in Spain food. Garbina, I can send you some olives maybe or something like that, maybe olive oil. Whoa, I love olive oil. I'll use it every day for everything. It's super important, it's the key. Is the key for the flavor. Yeah. What do you eat in the in the morning? Like, what, what's your breakfast? What's your go-to? I know there's been nothing. Man, big I'm, I'm diet starving. Guy, right? <laughs> are you are you fasting? I'm fasting. Yes. No way. Okay, tell please I'm, tell me. I'm I'm, like, I just started like a couple days ago. You gotta tell me about the routine. You gotta tell me. 
What do yeah, you do? So I'm doing this intermittent fasting. Okay. Uh, so it basically, you know, I try to go for 16 hours of yeah. not really consuming any major calories or anything that will require energy for digestion and then eight hours eating to start a day, not every day, but I like to start always the day with uh, like some warm water, lemon, um, silver drops. They're really, yeah. really good for like um, all the bacteria, all the stuff, you know, because you're detoxifying and stuff. Mm. And, uh, and then I like to like have a green juice uh, or a green smoothie with like spinach, all the leafy greens, spirulina, all the stuff. And and fruits. So I'm I'm not yeah. really I'm not I'm not going for a, a typical Spanish heavy meal like Garbine has presented. <laughs> oh, there. okay. 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 <laughs> so I, I don't know I don't know Teach how own, right? <laughs> I don't know how we would manage. You know, uh, I, I guess I would be the one that would prepare juices. You know, I'm I'm actually at the low expense for you, Garbine. You know, you you wouldn't spend a lot of money on me. I don't eat anything for half a day. Yeah, just fruits, a little bit of water, you know. Exactly. So low maintenance. So and a lot of sun. And a lot of sun. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Have you, Garbini, have you ever done that? The intermittent intermittent fasting? Have you tried it before? I no, I've never tried it. Okay, I let's love do food. It. I love eating. That's let's do it. Novak, do you cook? Do you cook for people? I prepare my breakfast. It takes a lot of time, you know, like <laughs> like water and like lemon and like fruit. <laughs> what is your your diet right now? Like, if you can share it, I don't know, but I know you were like vegan for a while. Well, it's a plant based. It's plant based, basically. Plant -based. Well, yeah. It's been like this for five years, actually. I grew up in a certain way. Actually, I grew up on the opposite side of the spectrum. I was yeah, eating meat three times a yeah, day, always. everything. So I I changed that. I changed that and I'm really I'm I'm I like it the way it is and Novak after after your career let's say so many years um do you see yourself like coming back to like um on your kitchen table black, more like <laughs> having black a nice omelet. food like a barbecue barbecue on Sundays or or you keep the same like strict diet what do you think I I, I have occasional barbecues with my friends but you know, I have vegetables. <laughs> I have potatoes, <laughs> and that's okay. it. You know, I'm fine. You know, I'm okay with that. I I have uh, I have I have my salad. You know, I have the the vegetables, potatoes, and stuff. I guess that question means that you're thinking you might relax a little bit with your diet after your career. Is that right? It's probably it'll probably a little bit more like me because I'm a little bit thinking like. You know, whenever there's a big break, I always like gain 10 pounds. So I feel like after my <laughs> tennis career, I'll like... um, no, I feel, I feel like I've, my mom is a nutritionist. So I grow up okay. always, you know, with a good common sense and a good like basis of what to eat and what not to yeah. eat. So yeah, I take care of it. I'm not too strict because I, you know, it's, yeah. it's a pleasure. I, I like that. I enjoy it. But, you know, I take care of it. And I think that even after I stopped playing tennis, you know, as an athlete, you want to feel healthy yeah. and, you know, good with yourself. So I might have more ice creams and stuff like that. But, you know, I will keep yeah. like a good, um, a good diet. Yeah. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. If you were listening last week, you'd have heard Chris Bowers with one of the game's greats. Not only is Stan Smith well-known as Grand Slam champion at both Wimbledon and the US Open, and as the face of the Adidas Stan Smith shoe, He's also president of the International Tennis Hall of Fame, whose annual tennis competition has been entertaining fans over the past week. 
we all like to ask and to talk about who the GOAT is, who is the very greatest. But sometimes it's just as interesting to ask former players who they believe have been the most underrated in the game. And that's where Chris chose to go with Stan Smith. You know, we've had representatives on the ENC that are really feel very strongly about fame and uh, not necessarily just results, but fame of how they, what they've done in the game. And, and we've had, you know, Yannick Noah's a great winner of the French, but he also became famous, famous for, you know, his role in, as an African, you know, tennis player and, um, in France. And so, you know, fame was certainly a big part of that. I think there's a couple of players that Pat Cash, you know, had a, a great win at Wimbledon and, and uh, you know, has had some other great results as well. But it's, uh, it's not easy to compare those, you know, players from different eras and different countries and different results and different surfaces. And Bruguera won the French twice, you know, but had a very short uh, kind of career and, and not many other results and other surfaces. Uh, although they did have some good results. So, you know, you have players like that that, you know, have been on the ballot and uh, the voters have not necessarily, you know, been enthusiastic enough to vote for them. Because, I mean, Hall of Fame is an American concept. Not everybody gets it around the world. And yet the word fame means that, you know, someone like a Nick Kyrgios uh, or even an Jabeur who could be doing great things in Africa just by uh, her performance at Wimbledon this year, uh, and at Roland Garros as well. You know, those people are famous in a in a different way, and probably provide a challenge for you and the uh, members of the and enshrinement the nomination. Com- uh, well, not just the voters, yeah. but the enshrinement nomination committee. Yeah, if you look at you know the results of the uh, major tournaments in Davis Cup, and then you look at you know other things, and uh, so Kyrgios is a good example. Of, I don't think he's been passed. Or I don't know if he's gotten to the quarterfinals of a major tournament. Maybe he's gotten Once. to one quarterfinal. And so, you know, he's become famous in some ways, but he doesn't have any results to deserve, uh, you know, consideration uh, in the Hall of Fame. But, you know, he could if he put his mind to it and he got in shape and he really prepared himself. And uh, it, I think he'll look back on his career with some regrets that he could have put a little more effort into it and... You know, and had some you know better results. He's beaten. He can beat every player. He's done it, and but he hasn't done it on a consistent basis. And uh, you know, you can do a lot for society and that sort of thing. Uh, but you know that it's it's only a very small part of the Hall of Fame consideration. But according to 2018 Hall of Fame inductee and fellow former Wimbledon champion Michael Stieck, maybe being an entertainer should weigh more heavily in all of these deliberations. It's like players these days throwing a racket, which happens rarely with very few players. But I just remember like when Baghdad is at the Australian Open after a match, like smashed five or six of his tennis rackets after he lost the match. That was on all the tabloids and all the headlines of the newspapers. It was not the result of the match. It was the fact that he smashed five or six tennis rackets. So it just shows it's not about tennis. It's about personality. It's about the people that are playing the sport it's about stories that are being told and can be told by the media as well so that got a lot of attention obviously um and so i was very aware of that 
And is that good? I mean, you think of someone like Rafa, who never breaks a racket because it was drummed into him by his uncle that people in Africa want one of his rackets and therefore he shouldn't uh, abuse them. And yet we see that Kyrgios, whose um, antics are often more prominent than his results, uh, he gets massive publicity. Well, I think you always need both sides of the story. You know, like in our time, we had like Stefan Epic was a very quiet and calm person. And then you had a Boris who was very emotional, myself. Uh, you had Andre who played very energetic and on the court with all the things that he had with long hair and jeans and stuff. I think you need to have those opposites to be able to create stories. And what I find these days is that the players should give more from themselves, from their personality. You need to know basics. What's their favorite food? Do they have a dog? You know, what, what's their favorite soccer club? And those rivalries make the sport even more interesting because people look forward to Kyrgios as playing Nadal. You know, it's not about the better better player should win. It's about um, what's going to happen. You know, is he going to serve on the hand? You know, is he going to upset Nadal? How is Nadal going to react? So you realize that the fans are looking so much more than just a great tennis match. Are the top players a little bit too nice to each other? I mean, there's tremendous respect among Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. Do you sometimes wish there was a little bit of needle the way there was between, say, Becker and Cash or, I don't know, thinking of other players of your era? Well, you look at Lennon, McEnroe, uh, you know, Connors was not friends with anyone, I guess, at the time, basically. Um, one thing, you know, you still respect your opponent for what he's done and what he's doing on a tennis court. That's not the question. I think they all do. But you don't have to like everyone. And if you're playing in against Slim Final, there was a time when Roger was so dominant on the two and the players walked off court and said, well, it was such a great pleasure to play against Roger and more or less to lose against Roger Federer. You know, it's such an honor to have played him. It's like, I, I was sat at home. I said, like, if I would be a coach, I, I would get my player and say, like, how can you say that? I mean, you go out there because you want to win. And if you don't win, you're upset. You can accept the fact that you lost against a better player, but the next time you go out, it has to be, well, I'm going to do better and I'm going to win. If it takes a little bit of mental gaming on court, which is still inside the rules and everything, fair enough. You know, and then Boris was a guy who was very good at that. You know, he used the mental part of the game more than others did to upset, throw off his player. Connors did that in a big way. Johnny Mack did that. But still, there was always respect for the achievements for your opponent. And I think that's something that I'm missing. It's a little bit of controversy, a little bit of, of a fight, not just with a tennis record and a tennis ball, but just to get in the other guy's head as well. A little bit. You said that if you had actually tapped into your best more often, you might have won more Grand Slam titles. I mean, you won the Wimbledon singles title, Wimbledon doubles title, Davis Cup, Olympic gold medal, and every meaningful tournament on German soil. And yet there are some people who still say that you underachieved. Do you see that as a compliment or do you think they're being a bit harsh on you? Well, I think it's not meant as a compliment, so I can't see it as a compliment. And I think that the people are on the one hand right. Um, I should have, with the potential I had and with the possibilities I had, I should have won more Grand Slams. But I was not willing to sacrifice everything just for the sake of tennis and winning titles. And uh, if I look back now, the one thing that I really regret is not winning the French in 1996. And for the sake of winning the French in Wimbledon, I think would have made a good match and shown that I was a good player on all surfaces. And because I, I lost, I lost it. I think not Kafelnikov won it. I really lost the match because I, 
I didn't believe enough in, in being able to win it at the time. Um, but looking back, as I said, um, I am the person that I am right now because I lived and played my career as I did. And I'm very happy with the person I am right now. And uh, if I would have focused everything just on tennis and blocked out everything else as other players did, I might be a different person. And uh, I'm not sure if I would be happy with that. So um, I'm happy with it. So if the person you are now was coaching the person you were in your late teens, would you have recommended you do anything different? No, I think the success is right. And I've learned, I have to say, my first coach was Mark Lewis from New Zealand, brother of Chris Lewis, who was the Wimbledon finalist, who was an okay player, Mark, but he basically taught me what it meant to be a tennis professional. And that's something that a young kid with 16, 17 doesn't have an idea what it really means to be a professional. You feel like I travel the world, I go to tournaments, and that's what I do. But it's so much more to that. And Mark Lewis taught me that I had not to practice six hours a day uh, with my way of playing tennis and being as a person. For me, it was important to practice maybe four hours a day, additional strengthening and, and running stuff, but just to do that on a very, very high quality. And I think that's something that every player has to learn for himself. What is the right setup for me to create the best performance and to get the best out of me? And and as a coach, it's very important to sense that, to feel, to understand the person behind the player, to give the right advice. And uh, Mark Lewis was a great influence for my career. And I, I think I learned the basics really from him, what it meant to be a professional, to be then that successful. Without him, I think I probably would have not managed to do that. If you had been at your peak 10 years earlier, I think you would have been hailed as the, certainly for a time, as the greatest player that Germany had ever produced. But you had the either good fortune or misfortune to play at the same time as Boris Becker and Steffi Graf. And in many ways, you were the third person in that. Do you think that you were somewhat underappreciated in your home country because of having to share the limelight with them? Um, no, not unappreciated. I mean, I learned when I started playing in Germany, I really, really didn't enjoy playing in Germany because I always felt there was a lot of expectation and you were not able to really please the crowd's expectation. Um, I learned at some stage when it started basically in 91 at the Masters when I played against Boris and I walked in the arena and I felt like eight and a half thousand were against me and only one and a half thousand were for me. And uh, when I reflected on that, I, I learned to understand that there were not eight and a half thousand against me. There were eight and a half thousand for Boris, which is a completely different thing. And once I learned that, that it's not against someone, but people are cheering for you. And sometimes they do things, they, they shout in like, you know, come on, try harder or give it a better try or something like that. I would get very upset in younger ages. When I got older, I learned that it was not to hurt me. It was about... They were so disappointed that I did not really reach my full potential. They wanted me to win. So they did say this to encourage me to be a better player and to maybe win. So once I did this, I really enjoyed playing in Germany. And, and that is something that um, came along with me being the, the third, so to say, as you said, after Boris and Steffi was no problem in general at all, because I think we all benefited from each other, especially Boris and myself, because we had this rivalry and we always wanted to be better than the others. So I think that rivalry made us better tennis players in general, because we wanted to, we had a goal, you know, to be better than the countryman in a way. 
So I think at the end, it really helped, uh, helped me and I think it helped Boris as well. I'm sure that's the case. I just remember at the end of 93, I mean, you'd played Davis Cup all year. You'd won the uh, the Davis Cup for Germany pretty much single-handed because you played singles and doubles all year. Boris had finished outside the top 10. And yet when you played each other, I think, in Stuttgart in 94, the crowd was more for him than for you, which always struck me as desperately unfair to you. And I wonder if you felt that in any way. No, because he was the first. I mean, I always compare that with Formula One. You know, you have Michael Schumacher who won seven or eight world championships and Federer won four. He's a great driver and he's very, very successful. But it will always be Michael Schumacher. And it will be Michael Schumacher in 20, 30, 40 years coming. And that was the same with Boris and Steffi. I mean, they were the first. They have done things that no one has ever done before. And so they deserved and also got more emotional feedback and and involvement from the people because they've achieved things in such a young age that people will never forget. And for that reason, that was okay with me because I understood that I, you know, I, I was not less liked, I was respected, but there was someone before me who did the same thing that I did in a way. So, um, and, and that's okay, you have to accept it and it should not get you to the point that you feel like I can't perform at a high level because that affects me as a, as a person which it didn't. Sometimes, obviously, I was not happy with it, no doubt about it, and I felt I could have received more respect for my uh, achievements and for my results. But looking back now, I think uh, the public did that, and uh, that was fine. You got tremendous international respect in 2018 when you were inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Now, how much did that mean to you to be recognized as one of the greats of tennis through that particular honor? I, it meant a lot and it means a lot to me. I mean, uh, you know, when you're a young player, you never feel like no matter what kind of success you have, that you might get it into the Hall of Fame, which is the ultimate shrine of the tennis world, so to say. And I know that my ex-manager, unfortunately, Ken Meyerson, who, who died at a much too young age, um, for him, it was so incredibly important. He wanted me so badly as an American to be in the Hall of Fame. And so he tried to pull the strings and get me in and did this and talk to people and whatever. And I was, I was nominated, I think, twice before because I, before I got in and uh, I didn't make it. And uh, so in that year was my last chance, basically, because they changed the rules at the International Tennis Hall of Fame. I, you know, I wanted it very badly. I didn't expect it to happen. And so I was so much happier as well that I was recognized as someone who was a good tennis player, but also after the world, after the time of my active career, that people reflect on what did you do afterwards? How did you manage your life? What kind of achievements with my foundation and being tournament director in Hamburg? So it was good at a later age to receive that because it just takes the whole picture of a person in and that just made me even happier. On iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com this is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Finally this week, we look ahead to the Olympic Games as the players jet off to Tokyo. Some big names won't be there, among them Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal and Dominic Team. But world number one Novak Djokovic will be there and is still very much on his quest for a golden slam. That's all four grand slams and an Olympic gold in one calendar year. Nobody's ever done it in the men's game. Only Steffi Graf has done it in the women's. 
Another man making the trip and hoping to make some history of his own is Team GB's Andy Murray, who's going for a tennis record three Olympic titles in a row. My goal is to try and win a medal, ideally a gold one. And yeah, that's what my that's what my goal is for the for the Olympic. It'll be great to go to to Tokyo and and play there. We're lucky that um, the Olympics is going ahead uh, this year. I've always enjoyed the Olympic experience, and yeah, my goal is to is to win a medal for for my country, and I'll I'll give my best effort to do that. Murray will also team up with double specialist Joe Salisbury, and with all the COVID protocols and measures in place, is ready to block everything out just to play tennis yeah i mean look i mean i I would rather not be in uh bubbles and stuff but i'm also okay with them like like i said i don't like a normal tournament like if i'm on the road at a tournament the only thing that i would do differently would be well i wouldn't be getting the covid things up your nose every couple of days but yeah like in the evenings i would go for dinners uh but the rest of the time, it's the same for me. Like, I'm at the hotel, I'm at the courts, gym. I'm not really going out that much, like, exploring the cities and everything. So I haven't minded the bubbles and things. Um, I know it's going to be strict in Tokyo, but I'm all right with that. It's fine. Tokyo has certainly had its challenges getting to this stage, but home star Yoshihito Nishioka is looking forward to playing at the purpose-built tennis stadium. I mean, longest goal is my... I want to win the Grand Slam, but uh, now I'm thinking about the Olympics now for Tokyo Olympics. Um, I want to play that one, so and then I want to play hometown, and it's, it should be first Olympics for me. So I think it's going to be a very special moment. I mean, I think for um, all players, um, this is a new, new places and on one new stadium as well. That's very cool. And then they got uh, indoors court as well. So yes, we very exciting for um, pre-Olympics here, but uh, also for very good for us, they made a nice place for a tennis court. So after Olympics still, we, you know, we can use here too. So if we can training here, that would be great too, you know. So I think they build wonderful place and on, um, we are very happy for this, yeah. There seems to be a few young Japanese players coming through. Now, how healthy would you say Japanese tennis is these days? As And how much of that is a knock-on effect of, you know, Kay serving as an inspiration for you? Yes, um, I got the inspiration from Kay as well. But now, um, some couple good young players now uh, for junior, number one, Shintaro Mochizuki. Um, I practiced only a few times, but He's very good, he's very talented, so I hope it's coming up very quick. And, you know, other Watanuki or, you know, many young Japanese players coming up right now. So, you know, we are very excited, but I don't want to lose against the young players, but I can, if I can, I want to show young players, you know, we can be great, so, you know, we, we want to wait in the, the, the top race, yeah. One of the strongest teams at the Olympics will doubtless be Russians Daniel Medvedev, Andrei Rublev, Karen Hachinov and Aslan Karatsev competing under the banner of the Russian National Olympic Committee due to various sanctions imposed 
on the Russian anti-doping agency. Medvedev and Hachinov delighted, though, simply to be playing at their first Olympics. You know, it's always nice to be part of a Russian team. You know, we are one of the best friends. We rise up together, you know, from young age. And uh, obviously, to when, when we come up uh, together as a... You know, in a team environment, let's say, like when we play for for the country, uh, it's always super nice. You know, we are always playing different games, cards, you know, and share different moments. But Olympics, I would say it would be the first one for, for all of us. Uh, different experience this year, I think. And um, obviously, it's uh, still single uh, single event, you know, uh, we will play doubles uh, with Andre as well, but, uh, you know, it's a single competition. So I would say it will be a different, different atmosphere, different vibes and... Uh, I would like to, you know, to live through that. Let's see how how is it. Of course, I heard there are going to be some strict rules about masks and everything. Well, this uh, I think everybody can handle. Um, of course, being without my stuff um, is is a little bit disruptive. But at the same time, there's going to be other stuff from from the Russian team. So so far, seems almost like a normal tournament in a way. It's going to be my first time, so I'm really excited to go there. Of course, uh want to just uh, play good, try to get uh, the medal for the country, no matter in which discipline, um, hopefully the gold one. The Olympic tennis events are set to be held from July the 24th to August the 1st, and we'll have more on all of that next time. Remember, you can catch up with all the latest news on the players heading to the Olympics and those still out on tour at atptour.com and via the ATP Tour app. For now, though, enjoy the tennis. We'll catch you next time.